Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all out this morning. Um, I've missed being here for a couple of weeks. Um, some holidays were one of the weeks. We had a great time. And uh, last week I was speaking up in Newcastle uh, with our friends in Centre 61 there. So it's great to be back. I've missed it. And uh, just love being here and love worshipping the Lord this morning. The presence of God is here and he's moving in this place. And one announcement before um, I move on into the series this morning as we showed a little video last week. For those of you who don't know, our building next door is, uh, the ground floor is, is, is getting there. We're not too far away from it um, being ready. Um, carpet tiles are going down at the moment and um, the painting's been done and it's looking well. Um, we'd love to keep the work going on and we've done a brilliant job of um, seeing the uh, Lots of money raised, basically, but we need another £200,000 to finish the first floor, which would be a space for our kids and youth and some of our compassion activities and stuff like that. And um, unbelievably, we do have a match funder who will match up to £100,000. So if we can raise another £100,000, then the 200000 that we need to do that will, will be there. Um, and so um, we know people here have given really sacrificially, so we don't want people here necessarily to feel the burden of that, but we would love to kind of open it out to family, friends, other people who could maybe sponsor us as we um, do different things. So we're going to do a 100K run for 100K pounds. Um, We'll see how close we get to that. But anyway, Sharita and I are going to try and run 100K between us. We thought it was too much to do it individually. We might die. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to try and do that the week of the 12th of June, running 10K each night for, um, b- between us. One lap of the lakes each, because one lap of Kergavan Lakes is, 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 is roughly 5K. And then on the Saturday, run 50K. So we're, we're going to like... The stuff, it should have been on your email on Friday. It's also kind of on Facebook. It will go up on more on social media over the next number of weeks. There is a link there on Church Suite to be able to give to that. We'd love to encourage people to give. But we also have little forms at the back here. So if you would like to run 5K with us and you feel like in your school or in your workplace or you'd like to walk 5K with us, one or two of them can be a walk, then please take one of these and um, try and get people to sponsor you. And uh, if you want to collect that in cash, then we can bring it in in an envelope near the time. Um, and uh, we'll see how we get on as we kind of believe God to bring in the funds for this new space that we want him to use for his glory. Amen. So intercession for my hamstrings would be, uh, would be wonderful as well. Um, as, you, as you know, we're in a period um, between Easter and Pentecost, and um, <clears throat> these relate to, in the Bible, the post, what we call the post-resurrection encounters, times when Jesus showed up sporadically and periodically to his followers. Um, it's an interesting one because they don't always seem to recognize him. I'm not quite sure fully why. Um, but, but then they do, and when they do, they're fascinated by who he is and the fact that he has risen from the dead. And so, so far, we've looked at um, his um, appearance to Mary at the tomb. We've looked at the two on the road to Emmaus. We've looked at Thomas, and we've looked at the disciples in the upper room. And so today, really the last of them before we look at ascension next week, um, is Jesus' encounter with Peter. 
on the beach, which is just an incredible story, absolutely incredible. And we're going to get into that today. But before we kind of make some comments on it, will we read it together? Is that okay? So if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. If you, if don't, if you don't, don't worry um, too much because I have it on the screens. But let's listen to these words from John chapter 21. And um, that's trying to just, you've maybe read this before. Maybe it's the first time. If you have read it before, allow yourself to be moved from familiar to fascinated, okay? Uh, John 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And the others said, we go with you. And so they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them and he said, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish in it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. And so Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? He's talking about John himself who's writing this gospel. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. An amazing, an amazing scripture. I could preach a series on it, to be honest. So I'm going to try and limit it to about 30 minutes here because I want us to take communion together at the end. Um, but I want to start by uh, helping you understand a little bit of context because 
When we get the context, it really speaks to the series title, From Familiar to Fascinated. Uh, so back up for a moment with me. Lots has happened in the previous couple of months. It's been dramatic, to say the least, okay? So G the mounting pressure on Jesus as he, um, before he was crucified, he comes to Jerusalem at Passover. The city of Jerusalem is a hotbed of religious fervor, passion, um, zeal. Um, there's an intensity about those particular passages that we read. There's Palm Sunday. There's Jesus kind of crashing up the temple. There's the arguments with the Pharisees. There's the Last Supper. There's the trial before Pilate and the high priests. Then there's the crucifixion itself. Then there's the resurrection. Then there's the resurrection encounters. It's all pretty full on and quite surrounded by supernatural events. And the pressure is, is, is high, and the intensity is high. But in contrast, this particular scene is really ordinary. It's really familiar. It's almost like a scene from before Jesus' ministry or the early days of Jesus' ministry, when and before he was maybe as well known. The disciples are just doing what they'd always done, fishing. It's Galilee. It's hometown turf, simple Old Galilee. It's where Jesus was brought up. It's where the disciples were from. There's no crowds anymore. It's just a boat on a sea, on a lake, and Jesus on a shore, and a few men trying to fish. And uh, it's distinctly ordinary. It's very familiar. And yet it's into this familiarity that Jesus comes to fascinate his disciples all over again. And yet not here to fascinate them in some uh, spectacular moment of splendor, even though at times Jesus appears to him, uh, us and to people in that way. But in a, in a, in a way where that uh, emphasizes the beauty of the incarnation that God comes to us exactly where we're at. He comes and meets us and he comes and meets the disciples right in the midst of the distinctly ordinary in the familiarity of everything connected to their lives. The other part of the context that's obviously really important, many of you will know this for the scene, is that Peter had, just days previous to Jesus' crucifixion, had told Jesus, in front of all the other disciples, that he would never deny Jesus. So he, he had confessed, we'll read it in a moment, that he would never deny Jesus. I think it's on the screen, actually, the next, the next verse. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter had done something that he never thought he would do. And uh, what I think is important for us to understand as we go through this morning, when Peter went denied Jesus, he wasn't just committing a sin. He was doing something that he never thought he would do. And that's the worst, isn't it? The worst is when we do something that we never thought we would do. That we maybe even promised ourselves that we'd never do. Or we had an ideal that we'd never do that. And we did it. And the reality is at some point in our lives, every single one of us will probably at some point do or have done something we never thought we would do. And that's the hardest one. 
to overcome. None of us have a problem really saying we're sinners. We all throw that. We all make mistakes. We all get that. We're all happy to say that. We can admit that. But if we're honest, we all think some sins are worse than others, don't we? We grade sin. I like this from David Zal. He, he um, plays on that verse in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. We do it, don't we? We grade sin. We grade the levels of sin. I guess that's a natural thing to do for some reason as human beings. And it works out okay when it's other people doing the worst sins or the sins that you think are maybe worse. But when it comes kind of full circle and we find ourselves, as life goes on, doing something that we never thought we would do, then the feeling is kind of horrible inside. We never think that the problems that we hear about other people's marriage is going to come to our marriage. We never think we'd find ourselves saying that thing to our spouse or maybe worse that we never thought we would actually say. We never think we'll get addicted to the thing that we've ended up getting addicted to. We never think we'll allow our eyes to watch that thing that we told ourselves we'd never watch. We never think we'll become that person. And when it happens, the shame starts to seep its way into our soul. And it takes residence almost inside us. And um, it feels like it's beginning to crawl all over your skin and eat the insides of you away. That's what shame tries to do. Imagine Peter here for a moment. Mr. Loyal. Peter saying, Jesus, I will die with you. Before anybody else, I'll be the first one to die. Don't even think about me denying you. Jesus, I will die for you. I am. This is my, this is my strength, Jesus. This is, this is where my strength comes in. When this happens, I, I'll die with you. I'm, I'm loyal. I'm all about leadership. I'm all about strength. These are the moments that I was born for. When it comes to Jesus, I'll be the one to die for you. I will not deny you. I'll be the first one. I promise you. And then he does. Not just once, but three times. He denies Jesus. Let's just read it, Matthew chapter 26, to feel the emotion of it. By the third time, this is where we're picking up the story. It says, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're, the one, you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses at himself. Right? So this is like him saying, it's not so much that he was actually swearing in terms of bad language. It's like he's saying almost the equivalent of a swear on the Bible. Or God strike me down dead if this is true. That's the level that Peter is going to here. And he says, I, he calls down curses on himself and he swore to them, I do not know the man. This is the third time now. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter, Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Feel, you feel the emotion in this? Mr. Loyal himself. And he has denied Jesus. And the thing that he was most principled about, the thing that he valued the most, he'd utterly and completely compromised in these moments. The hardest thing is dealing with the sin that we maybe never thought we would do. And this will happen to us all at some point. 
And what I, what I want to say this morning before we go on, what this morning is not about, it's not about dragging up any sins from our past that have already been forgiven, okay? And some of you really need to hear that because the enemy um, works with your conscience in such a way that you think that now you have to like drag up all this stuff. If you're forgiven and you know you're forgiven, and if you've come into the freedom of forgiveness of sins, then live in the forgiveness, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil will want to take you back into it. Don't go back into it with him. Um, and so, just that's a disclaimer. But for those of us this morning who are sitting in this place, and there's particular things that the enemy likes to double down on on your life, whether it's a particular thing that you've done that makes you feel shame, whether it's a particular mistake that you've made, whether it's a particular disappointment that you have, or whether it's just a particular sense of feeling like a failure because of certain events in life that has felt quite strong in your life, then this is, this is for you this morning. This is for you to get free. And I believe that God wants to set some people free this morning. Um, shame is the devil's main artillery. He's been doing it from the Garden of Eden. The other name for the devil later on in the Bible is the accuser. He specializes in accusing. It's that voice in your head that wants to accuse you and get at you and remind you of what you've done or who you are, all of those kind of things. It's a little bit different than guilt. Shame's that thing that even though nobody else sees it, it feels like a ball and chain tied around your ankle that you're just dragging around life with you. Guilt is the bad feeling we experience in response to something we've done. Shame is an all-consuming negative feeling that just hangs and hovers over you like a cloud. And that's what I want to speak to today. Um, Brandy Brown, who's talked a lot about this in the public kind of domain much more recently and seems to have you know, scratched an itch in a lot of people. It says, she says this, shame corrodes the very parts of us that believe we are capable to, capable to change. That, that's what I want to speak to this morning. The parts of us, and this is what Jesus is speaking to Peter, the part of us that even though we're at church this morning, even though we raised our hands maybe in worship this morning, and even though we know God's here, and even though we know to an extent we are forgiven from our sins, it's just that one part that's not quite sure that Jesus and what Jesus has done has really set us free from that because the feeling of shame and the feeling of failure is so deep and so strong. You see, even though Peter had already met the resurrected Jesus, even though he'd already encountered Jesus and come to realize that Jesus had conquered over the grave, even though he had a, a general understanding that he was going to be forgiven and that he had been forgiven, the betrayal, that thing that he thought he would never have done, it still lingered. It still lingered in his soul. And I'm sure the enemy was having a field day with Peter. I'm sure he loved to remind them. Remember what you said. Like you said you were the one that, that would die for Jesus. And there you go, three times. Not even just once, Peter. Three times. You called down curses on yourself. You swore on the Bible, so to speak. Imagine what Peter was feeling. He probably knew he was forgiven in his head but he couldn't forgive himself. And that's the hardest bit often, isn't it? Forgiving ourselves. And so what did he do? Well, he does particularly what a lot of men do. He just went back to the thing that he thought he could do. Fishing. So 
He's feeling this lingering shame. He's feeling like a failure. He's feeling a lack of meaning. And so what will I do? Well, I'll do the only thing that I know that I can do. And I'll I'll go back fishing. And we do this. We kind of resign ourselves to, it's not like we often maybe fully give up, although for a lot of people that feels like a better option. But we have this sort of sense of, and I felt this was for some people this morning, it's, it's like, and particularly, not, not exclusively, but particularly for some men in the room this morning, it's like a slow resignation. It's like a, inside, it's like you've slowly resigned yourself to thinking that you'll never really fully be the person that you could have been. And so you do the only thing that you maybe know you can do. And the thing that's interesting but, in, but inside, you still, you're still you not fulfilled. And the thing that's really interesting about this story with Peter is, even though he goes back to the only thing that he knows that he can do, it's not going very well either. He's fished all night, and there's nothing. And the empty net is almost a metaphor for his empty soul. It feels like he's done something that's lingering so strong that he's never going to be the person that he could have been. Thanks be to God, Jesus will not leave him that way. Thanks be to God that in the distance somewhere while he's out on the boat, there is a man, the resurrected Jesus, who almost inconspicuously, almost unrecognizably, starts walking ashore and calls out to him, comes to him right where he's at. That's my first point this morning that I want you to remember. Jesus comes to you right where you're at, in a unique way, right where you are. Jesus comes to us in the middle of the familiarity and the humdrum of our lives. He will not leave you as you are. We will not even recognize him. I don't know at times, potentially, We might need somebody else to help us recognize him. You're maybe here today because somebody asked you to come with them. I know at times in my life where I haven't necessarily recognized where Jesus is, I need friends. I don't know if you picked it up in in the passage, but it actually said when John said to him, it's the Lord, then Peter's like, oh, it's the Lord. And instinctively, as we'll see in a moment, he knows he's got hope. Jesus comes to Peter just like he came to him at the start. It's very unique. How did Jesus first come to Peter when he was at his nets, when he was near his fishing life? And Jesus comes to Peter in a very unique way that he came to him at the start and now he's coming to him again. Not forcefully, not aggressively, but just enough to notice that he's there. And um, Jesus is watching what we're doing as we go back to just our ordinary familiar lives. And Jesus is watching Peter. And even though we're unfulfilled and like Peter was, he, he's watching and he sort of shouts out from, from the shore. He says, hey, how are you getting on? Caught any fish? And I just get a sense this morning that Jesus is here and very gently, not in a controlling way, not in, not in a condemning way, but he's just like, here, how are you getting on with that kind of life? How, how, how's it going? 
He called out to them, verse 5, Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of a large number of fish. <laughs> so Jesus shouts out, how are you getting on? Then he reveals part of his goodness and his provision. You get a glimpse of his goodness. And then the, the question then becomes, once we know it could be Jesus, what will you do? What, what will you do? Will you recognize it's Jesus and take up the invitation? Or will you be stubborn and stay in the boat and think, I know how to do this, even though it's not really going that well? I love Peter's response. I get emotional every time I read it because I try to picture it. Um, as soon as Peter's heard him, that's John, say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. Even though Peter feels like a failure, even though the shame is lingering, he still loves Jesus. And almost instinctively, all that he's known of Jesus over those last three years gets triggered in that moment because he, he sees Jesus again. And he's got this stuff going on. He doesn't know how to deal with it, but he knows that if any hope of dealing with anything Almost his whole body is out of that boat and wading towards Jesus as quick as he can before he even realizes it. And he's like, I don't really care. You guys can sort the boat out. You guys can sort the fish out. We might have got the biggest catch we've ever had in our own life. I don't care. You lads can sort that out. I'm on my way to Jesus. And he starts wading through. Have you ever seen somebody try to wade through water when it's like, you know, up to their way? He's going as quick as he can just to get to the beach. And I don't even think he knows what he's going to do when he gets there. But he just knows there's something about getting to that shore once he realizes it's Jesus that he will not allow anything to stop him. There's no one like Jesus for Peter. There's no one like Jesus. His hopes are all in Jesus. And yet, He's still feeling this failure. And then Jesus gets, sorry, Peter gets to the shore. And you know what? Jesus has a firelit. And he's got the barbecue on. And this is the second point. Not only did Jesus come to you where you're at, Jesus knows the way to your heart. He knows the unique way to get your attention, to get to your heart. Jesus knows the way to get to a man's heart. There's a bit of grub and a fire to look into, yeah? So there's a few men standing around a fire. Picture them. They're all trying to be, do you know the way when men stand or sit around a fire, they all want to be the next one that puts the log on or the stick on, you know, that kind of thing, you know? And like, they just can't, you know, so they just, but at least they've got like a fire to stir into so they don't have to like get really vulnerable with one another really quickly. So they've got this fire and they've got some food they can graze on and they can like do like, the, oh, good, good grub, back, good grub. You know, good, you know, it's not really going deep, but it's just a fire and some food. And Jesus starts to kind of, he knows the way to your heart. I'm being very funny and practical there, so that's part of it. But he knows an even deeper way to get to Philip's, or Peter's, sorry, heart. Because as Peter stands around that fire and he smells the aroma of the fire, what does it remind him of? What does he get triggered by? Because if you read in the gospel accounts earlier, when he denied Jesus, what was he doing? He was standing around a fire keeping warm. And so as he stands around this fire with Jesus, he's got the Jesus, he knows Jesus is his hope, but the shame's still lingering. And as he stands around this fire and the fish are being cooked, 
and the smell of the fire comes. He remembers, doesn't he? It's killing him inside. He's looking into the eyes of the one who loved him, and yet he's dealing with the shame. And while the others joked around the fire and they're doing their kind of laddish kind of banter, I'm sure, of some description, I'm sure Peter starts to feel the distance between him and Jesus. It's it like it's, it hasn't really been spoken about yet. Like, Jesus, I know you've risen from the dead and all of that, and we're, it's brilliant, but that thing I did, we haven't, it's never really, like, are you going to leave us forever? And we never speak. You can only imagine what's going on in Peter. Listen to Luke's account. Uh, yeah, Peter replied, this is back when Peter did deny Jesus. Look what Luke says. Man, I don't know what you're talking about, Peter said. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Look at this phrase. The Lord turned and looked straight to Peter. Imagine that. Imagine Jesus standing in trial. Peter's denied him three times. And after the third time Peter's denied him, Jesus turns around and looks at him. Imagine that look etched into Peter's mind. Imagine how awful he feels about himself. I let the Lord down. The one who I said I loved my whole life, these last three years of my life, the one who means more to me than anything that or anyone has ever meant to me, the one who told me I was going to build his church, and I denied him three times, and all I can see is that look. And I don't think it was a condemning look. Or anything. It was just the look of Jesus. And nothing has been talked about since. What I want you to really see this morning is Jesus did not want to leave Peter in that place. So he came for him. He came for Peter. He knew Peter was going to be feeling like this. And so the fire of betrayal was going to be replaced by the fire of forgiveness and the fire of destiny and the fire of recommissioning. Peter was first called by Jesus on the shore. Now he's going to be called again by Jesus and recommissioned on the shore. And so the story goes on. As they finished eating, <laughs> like they're all kind of joking around him. <clears throat> I don't know how this worked, but let's imagine the scene. Jesus looks across. the They're all sitting around the fire, six of them, I think, seven, including Jesus. And he looks across the fire, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice the tone has changed, isn't it? Peter's not so, he's not so cocksure anymore. It's not, I know. It's like, uh, you, you know, you know, Jesus, you know I love you. And Peter has been humbled. See, Peter's been humbled at this point. Peter's had to learn the vital lesson that's fundamental to the gospel. And if he's going to be the one on, on which the church is built, if he's going to be one of the founding apostles, then he's going to have to understand the gospel better than anybody else. And it's this, that there's just some stuff you cannot do for yourself. That there's some sins that you cannot forgive. There's some situations that you cannot fix. There's some feelings of feeling fit that you cannot get through on your own. That only 
Jesus and his grace and his goodness can do those for you. Peter tried all those ways to do it. I will not deny you. Do you remember, even sometimes, you know, we, we, uh, we, we, in some ways he did try. Before he denied Jesus, he, he chops the ear off the, the, the Roman's guard, doesn't he, who comes to get Jesus. And Jesus has to say, Peter, that's not the way we're going to fight this battle. Put your sword away. Because the way, the way this happens is not by you and your own strength. It's by something that I can only do for you. And Peter's learn, learning this at this particular moment. Peter's having to learn it only when you get to the very end of yourself and you feel completely undone by sin or shame or failure or whatever. Only when you get to that point and you find that God, Jesus, is still standing there waiting for you, holding you, ready to forgive and accept and love you. Only then, in some ways, are we fully ready to be gospel witnesses in the world. And so we go back to the story after Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter responds, Peter says, okay. Jesus says, sorry, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks Peter again, Peter, do you love me? And imagine Peter's starting to get maybe a wee bit uncomfortable now. And he says, uh, yes, you know that I love you. Again, the same instruction from Jesus, take care of my sheep. I kind of get the sense that they're sitting around the fire. The awkwardness has started to kind of move through the group a little bit. They're all going, oh, Jesus is like really kind of going for it here with Peter. And, you know, you can imagine those of us who want to rescue the silence, the other guys, you know, they're probably like trying to like, you know, steer the direction in another way or whatever. But then Jesus comes a third time. Peter, Peter, do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt at this stage. But Jesus had asked him three times. Why, why did Jesus ask him three times? I wonder did it start to dawn on Peter, even though he was initially hurt. That for every time Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus was now giving him an opportunity to declare his love for him. Because for Jesus, he was not going to allow shame to outscore love. And so he said three times, he said, do you love me? Do you love me? So for every time that you felt like a failure, what I'm not going to ask you is this, what did you do? What did you do, you wee sinner? <laughs> what did you, what, that's not the question. Jesus' question, for every layer of shame that Peter felt, the question was not, what did you do? The question was, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gets a chance. For every mountain of shame inside him to be dissolved in that moment, Peter gets a chance to get free. Because he gets to tell Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you, you, know, you know it. I love you. Jesus, I, I love you. And in these moments, the guilt that Peter has carried for days, the shame starts to dissolve. Because Jesus knows the way to your heart. And Jesus wants to come to you as you are. The question is not, what have you done? The question is, do you love me? And this is the third point, and I'm finishing in a couple of moments so we can have communion together. Jesus comes to you where you're at. Jesus knows the way to your heart. And Jesus never loses 
vision for who you were born to be. Now let me prove this to you. If we go back, next slide, Johnny, to Luke 22, when Peter denied Jesus. This is what Jesus called him Simon at this point. Jesus called Simon Peter at this point. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, interesting verse, isn't it? Or desired to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, and here, here's what, you know, we're not playing games here, right? In other words, the devil wanted to take Peter out. He wanted to crush him. He wanted to completely crush him. He wants to desire you as wheat. And here's what Jesus said, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And look at this. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That means that even before Peter made the biggest mistake that he ever was going to make in his life, before Peter was going to experience regret like he never thought he would ever have to feel in his life, that Jesus knew he was going to do that and Jesus was going to pray him through it and Jesus was going to say, on the other side of that, once you've experienced love and forgiveness and healing and restoration, go and do the thing that you were always called to be. Go and be that leader, son, that you were always called to be. Go and be the apostle of the church that you were always destined and born to be. You're going you're to go through something that's really tough. You're going to feel like you failed the test. You're going to feel shame like you never felt it before. But I have never, for one moment, lost the vision of who you were born to be in your mother's womb. And I have prayed for you so that you will come to know that on the other side. What sort of a savior do we have? How beautiful is Jesus? And how glorious is this gospel that we have to proclaim? Jesus never loses sight of who you're becoming. The grace of God all over your life, even when you're denying him. Even, even when you're doing the thing that you never thought you would do. Even though you feel like you've done something and you see the look of Jesus like Peter felt and you're like, oh, ah, I know you forgive my sins, but that one, <laughs> I, know, I, I, know, I know you make me feel better about myself, but that sense of failure because those words that were spoken over me since I was a child, <laughs> that, that bit, can you, can you really get to that bit? And Jesus says, you better believe it because I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you right where you're at I know the way to your heart. And I've never lost sight of who you were becoming. Peter was never more qualified at this point to be the leader of the church. Do you know why he was never more qualified? Because he'd completely blown it. That's why he was most qualified. Because he completely and utterly, in his own strength, completely blown it. <laughs> And therefore, because he accepted it, he was ready to receive the forgiveness of Jesus in a way that allowed him to understand what this glorious gospel is all about. And if he was going to be one of the founders of the church, then he needed to preach that gospel and he needed to embody that gospel. But he needed to know it in his own heart. And so Jesus could say to him, Peter, feed my sheep. This is what you were born to do. This is who you were created to be. The resurrection, as we've said a few times, it comes asking questions. It asks Mary, why are you weeping? 
in a sense, it asked Thomas, do you want to come and put your hands in the wounds? The resurrection comes to Jesus and it says, not, what did you do? Do you love me? Do you love me? And this morning, I just have a real strong sense this morning, the presence of God's in the place has been since I walked in. And um, we're going to have communion now, so maybe uh, the ushers could just um, quietly just prepare that for us. And we're going to pass it around, and the, the worship team's going to come and just get ready for a song. I, I just really feel this morning, I feel both the compassion of Jesus in my heart this morning, but I, but I also feel a, um, the righteous anger of Jesus in my heart this morning against shame. Jesus has come to dismantle it. That's what he did with Peter. Jesus has come to say, just bring into the light before Jesus and you, the thing that you think that Jesus can't forgive or the feeling you feel Jesus can't release you from. Bring that to Jesus today. And just, and just allow him, as he asks you, do you love him? Just say, Jesus, you know that I, that I love you. He, he's, he's not looking to necessarily psychoanalyze you this morning for why you did it and when you did it and how you did it and all of those things. He, he just wants to absolve your shame with his love and his grace because of what he did for us on the cross, because he became that for you. So he wants you free of that so you can become all you created to be. And once it's done, it's done. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. And so Jesus isn't thinking about it anymore if you've confessed it. There's no point in you really thinking about it either or allowing it to define your life anymore. And so as we take communion this morning, I just I want you to encourage you to have your own moment with the Lord. Um, and then I'm going to pray in a moment. And... Um, Pray over us, and then I'm going to really encourage you this morning to come for prayer ministry if you feel like this is an area in your life that you just need to bring into the light, okay? So let's take communion. As the guys pass it around, go ahead, guys. On the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. Take this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death until I come again.